What's up, podcast? It's been about a year and a half, maybe two years since I've podcasted. And the reason is because I got in a real bad headspace. My father passed away around that time. And the good news is that I'm back in a really good place, um, better than I've ever been. And I'm really excited to do some podcasting. I'm doing a new segment where I interview people who are their own boss that I find interesting and I talk to them about what that entails and what their life as being an entrepreneur or self-employed person uh, is like. This uh, guest is Sam Tresco. He is a young furniture designer uh, in the Salt Lake City area. I I'm really interested in his designs. They're very simple, yet elegant and clean and also organic in a way and uh, very sturdy, very sturdy designs. Um, He puts a lot of uh, work into engineering them to be very strong and long lasting. Um, Anyway, here is my interview with him. I hope you like it. Sam, welcome to the Nash Stewart Experience. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Um, so this is kind of uh, a segment that I'm I'm doing that's about people that are their own boss that I think are very interesting and uh, about what your life looks like and what you were the things that make you your own boss and. Uh, the things, the way in which you see the world, um, and how it might be different than the way other people see the world. Because to be your own boss, you definitely have to see the world in a different way. So, um, why don't you tell us what you're currently working on? I'm currently working on um, a whole bunch of furniture projects at the moment. My primary personal project is a ultra sustainable end table slash stool it the the whole idea is to create is to try to find what does the future of furniture look like so how can i create something that is extremely light extremely strong extremely rigid very very beautiful is extremely environmentally sustainable and doesn't cost a lot of money and fitting all those first, all the all the previous criteria into the last one, is what makes the the project quite tricky. Yeah, that sounds like a very tall order. Um, why is that your goal? I think that if humanity is going to exist on the planet for a very very long time, we need to be able to consume resources in a really efficient way, and. If we're going to do that, the prod- the products that we're consuming need to last for a very long time. Uh, a lot of products, uh, especially in the consumer electronics space, based on the rate of technological advancement, are only going to last two to five years at the maximum. But things like structures, uh, the houses we live in, um, and our furniture, these 
problems don't advance in an exponential way. So our um, the the structures that we live inside of should last for fifty to seventy five years. Right, at least, and and sometimes they can last even longer. Uh, I was just in Europe uh, a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. Man, it, it amazes me <laughs> how old some of the buildings are, and people are 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 still living in them. And they've had like you could take like a cottage or something inside of one of the towns, and that building has so much history and has been used for so many different purposes. It's been a business. It's been a. a, a a bathhouse it's been a home it's you know mm-hmm. whatever um, I think that's really cool and definitely uh, shows the point you're trying to make uh, which is and I think making very well is that we can get a lot better use of things especially if they're built correctly and like I've got my laptop sitting on one of your tables this is sturdy and it looks really nice like this is a very elegant design um, how did you come up with the current style that you have right now? So the um, mo- most of most of this, the the general design philosophy is you want to minimize the geometric detail as much as you can. So okay. I was thinking about okay, what is a piece of furniture? A piece of furniture is pretty much a surface that's parallel to the ground that's some height above the ground, and how do you create that with the smallest number of geometric features possible? You'll see this in a lot of Apple products and a lot of a lot of contemporary design for that matter. Which where, are great designs, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, pe- people find the most geometrically minimal solution mm-hmm. really, really appealing. Um, Why do you think that is? Sorry to interrupt. Um, I think that it, with a lot of art pieces, mm-hmm. What you want is something that commands the maximum amount of mental attention possible. With a lot of design, you want uh, you want this object to command the minimal amount of mental energy possible. So you want every interaction that you have with this product to be as e- as mentally easy as possible. You um, learn or discover that you wanted to make furniture as opposed to you you have a degree in mechanical engineering uh, I have a degree in uh, design and a degree in physics okay. so it's it's kind of the two extreme skill sets of mechanical engineering okay the, okay. the very very creative and then the very very scientific and uh, theoretical de- okay I, I don't know why I thought you had a degree in, in mechanical engineering um, so design and mm-hmm. in physics, that yeah. is wild. That is, a, that is quite a combo. Yeah. What made you uh, gravitate to, to a very artistic uh, degree and then a very logical? So when I was in high school, I was really, really into the arts. And I was also um, very, very passionate about game design and game development. So design and doing things creative and creating novel things was super super interesting to me mm-hmm. and i wanted to um do concept art for video games but the more i investigated that field the more i realized that i want to make things in the real world and i want to make things that have a tangible impact in the world not just things that impact people's lives in terms of their 
enjoyment or in terms of their entertainment. Right. Which is still uh, a worthwhile pursuit. Oh, it is for sure. Um, it just wasn't what... Uh, it, it didn't it didn't light a fire under me personally so what is it if you could pinpoint like what is it that, that lights that fire for the more uh, utilized uh, useful um, from a practical standpoint uh, mm-hmm. objects and things like that um, I'd say the thing that the biggest thing that motivates me is to is environmental sustainability I see that as the most pressing as the most pressing issue that faces Mm -hmm. humanity and if i'm going to make a difference for something i would like it to be in terms of our ability to consume resources in a way that is sustainable on really long time time scales but also i love building things and i love making things and Mm -hmm. even if i'm not making a difference i enjoy the day-to-day of um, solving novel problems and figuring out how to rearrange matter and slowly gaining a mastery of craftsmanship and design and manufacturing. It's, I, e- even if what I'm doing isn't making a difference, I, I just legitimately love the, the short term, like day to day of it. That's, that's seriously cool. Cause I was just, <laughs> I was just about to ask you if there was uh, some crazy scenario where the world had figured out the resource problem and unlimited resources. What would you What would you be doing now? I I would probably go in the shop and make some furniture, <laughs> and <laughs> then go do some paintings. Like that's that's just the stuff that I find to be fun. Like if if Google wakes up a super intelligent AI and and all the all the problems are solved and there isn't really a need for my skills and my labor in the world that those are still the things I would like to do because I I just love getting better at them. It's not, even if I'm not the best person on the planet at that, I just, I just want to get a little bit better every day at these things. Um, and so I had, I had no idea until today that you were an artist as well. Um, and I want to talk about that a little bit later. Um, but first, um, since the segment is kind of about being your own boss, are you currently um, sustaining all your needs, paying the bills and everything, just based on your own uh, work that you're doing, not reporting to a boss kind of thing? Yeah, um, I, I'll, do, um, I, I'll do independent contract work for, uh, for this uh, guy named Chad Parkinson, he uh, he actually got me, and he was my uh, he was my mentor who taught me how to build furniture. Um, when uh, about six years ago, I worked as his apprentice, so okay. I've um, um, I'll help him out with uh, with jobs. We're doing several pretty large restaurant buildouts right now, so I will uh, I will bid like bid jobs out, make make uh, make renderings for clients, and then figure out how to uh, how to actually build and fabricate these things. So I get additional jobs coming in, uh, uh, coming in from him, which is just, which is really amazing. Cause I don't, I don't yet have my, I don't yet have an established name uh, as like a furniture builder and a furniture designer. So right. it's, and he does. So it's, it's just the, it's, it's a real blessing to have somebody like him who can help 
get me into uh who can help get me into this world right it seems to be huge in a lot of craftsman type jobs to have that mentor that apprenticeship mm-hmm. um as sort of a, a model i see a lot of things going towards um what do you what do you think about uh like traditional college education a lot of people think that in a few years um or the next decade or whatever it's going to kind of fade out and 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 become less relevant i i definitely subscribe to that school of thought um having earned a hard science degree i have uh i've definitely experienced that almost all of the courses up until halfway through junior year are available for free online and the versions of them that are available for free online are the best versions of them and just as i started finishing uh the senior level uh, math and physics courses Mm -hmm. were starting to appear online and the the only missing piece is really uh is really the online accreditation which I think will will happen eventually. Um, I think that there is value to uh, colleges and these institutions as far as a place for people to gather and do research. And there's a lot of there's a lot of these things where it does help to have a bunch of people together. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the case of just teaching people how to do hard sciences, I think that that can be done on the internet really effectively. Yeah, I agree. I, I got a computer science degree, um, which I really enjoy that experience mm-hmm. that I had getting that. Um, I'm glad it, I'm glad it happened. But if I would have known that you, I could have gotten all of that knowledge yeah. um, for free, it, uh, yeah. and uh, I probably would have done it. And, and, well, so like you're saying, the opportunity is... Uh, it definitely opens up our opportunities with that certification, mm-hmm. but I still think I would have done probably more if I would have known back then. If I would have gone the route of of, of building a, a portfolio rather than getting a college degree, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, computer science is an interesting one because it's it's definitely the highest utility degree to get, but at the same time, um, you're you're totally correct. It's the portfolio that that ultimately does it for you. It's huge, yeah. Um, yeah, the, yeah. The, <laughs> there are guys um, that I went to school with that were building up a portfolio as they were going to school, and one of them dropped out of school and just got a job, like a really good job, just with his portfolio, and then he never finished school. I mean, I and I... I don't know why at the time I wasn't, I didn't think, man, I should do that. Like it was, it was just like a little bit less tested, I guess. So mm-hmm. I, was kind of, I was kind of fearful of it. Um, when it comes to doing things that haven't been done before, um, how do you approach those opportunities? Um, yeah, the things that haven't been done before, that's what's really exciting to me. Um, building things that haven't been built where there is no there's both no instruction manual and there isn't there isn't a lot of precedent Mm -hmm. those are those are the really exciting places to work i i like feeling i enjoy the feeling of discovering something new i think that i'll I'll hear a lot of people say 
oh, all of the, all of it, I, people will say things to the effect of, oh, all of the new ideas, they feel like someone's come up with it already. Or if it's a new idea, there's a reason that somebody hasn't made it. Like the solution space for things that have yet to be done is really like, it's terrifyingly huge, just how big it is. You know, what, you know what kills me about that? Um, and I hate to interrupt. But, Go for it. Um, I, I started out wanting to be a musician of all things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a band for years. And um, I would write my own songs. And people would tell me all the time, like, oh, it's all been done. Like, um, you know, you, you, you're going to run into copyright issues because, like, all of the good ideas have been taken. <laughs> and now there's, like, in my opinion, this explosion of, like, new sounds and music like I've never seen. I think, personally, that we're in a golden age of music. I really do. And mm-hmm. I'm hearing sound. We, we're confined, because if you think about audio, we're confined to a finite, like, a very finite like places you can go like within a scale and stuff like that. Yeah, like yeah. there's only a few notes like, mm-hmm. um, and yet the variations, um, that people are able to still make. And when I hear something new on the radio every, every, every day, like it astounds me. It's like, Whoa, mm-hmm. like, just with that finite scale. And then if you scale that out to like video or something, like the possibilities are even more endless because yeah, now the, you're dealing with, uh, with the, color and, and vision the library of babel for music is just is is really 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 big all people will say that um some of my friends who who also make furniture will say things like that oh all of the shapes of furniture that have been made um or that are worth making have been made the only thing you can do is just make something really well that's a little bit different and i think that that's i i think that's a really defeatist attitude that's, um, that's insane. Especially with these new, uh, this new generation of, of digital manufacturing processes that are, that are currently emerging. Uh, things like um, six axis laser tube cutting uh, or large format 3D printing. These, these are manufacturing processes that are in their infant stages and have an enormous solution space that's very unexplored. So, and, and these are these are solutions that you're using in your furniture currently, correct? Yes, it is. So how, how, do you, how does that look? What does that look like? How do you use those uh, elements in your design yeah. pieces? So in, in design school, I was, I was told by um, a number of professors don't worry about the manufacturing process. Just figure out the shape that you want to make. Just figure out the form that accomplishes the task and uh, looks beautiful and aesthetic, and then you can figure out how to make it. And that's that's a fine way to make things, but you're not going to push the limits of manufacturing with that. And you're also not going to push the limits of design and structures with that approach. What I what I do with the, uh, um, specifically with the six axis laser tube cutting. So what, what this process is, is uh, there's a very, very powerful laser that can cut uh, tube steel. So tube that's in the shape of a rectangle or a square or a circle or an eye into pretty much any shape that you would like. 
so what I do is I, I, I think about that manufacturing process a lot and think about what are its limitations, what shapes is it good at making, and what shapes can't it make. And then I kind of create this sandbox that I can, uh, that I can, that I can play in. What are what are the boundaries, and how can I how can I push those boundaries? So once I have a really good understanding of the manufacturing process, I try to figure out okay, how do I make something beautiful that obeys these rules? And uh, then I'll generally. Uh, build things, uh, just build things in my head that obey those rules until I find something that, oh, this is, this is compelling and this hasn't been done before. And then I'll generally spend a little bit of time just sketching on my blackboard or sketching on a, uh, sketching on some paper. And then I'll, and then I will, uh, generally pretty quickly move into three-dimensional software and try to figure out how do I make these? How do I make these forms work together in three dimensions? Uh, and then from there, I can actually start building things. And uh, once I have uh, once I have a, a CAD file that I like, I can uh, I can then export the three dimensional files mm-hmm. and have these things cut out of steel and then weld them together. Okay, so you kind of do it. It sounds like you kind of do it a little bit backwards from what you're uh, you were taught in in school and everything, which is take. Uh, take technologies, uh, find the boundaries of the current boundaries of those uh, technologies, and then try to uh, make something beautiful within those boundaries, maybe play with the, the edges a little bit. Um, instead of just saying, this is a shape I want, send it off, you know, send it to someone else or try to figure out yourself later how you're going to make that. Yeah. That's really interesting because I, I kind of found the same kind of similar process with a lot of uh, song writers that I would associate with back uh, back in the day. Um, they would kind of do it the other way too. They'd be like, I just want it to sound like this mm-hmm. without thinking about how, um, what they had to work with. And I think that's huge. Like if you, if like you're a painter, if you're going to uh, paint a watercolor versus an oil, you're going to approach it totally differently. Yeah. And let's talk about that now. Like you you have these three awesome uh, pictures on the wall here. Um, You have this one, which is, uh, and and podcast audience can't see this, but it's it's kind of a, it's like a, a, what will you explain that? It's like a dreary night kind of, looks like a tree, like it, but it's a, it's got a huge depth to it. Yeah, so it has a, a very, very soft, uh, soft background that I created by pretty much mixing whites and dark, uh, dark blues um, with, with a really, really big brush. And my, my intention with this is just to, to, make the, to figure out how to make the brush strokes look really beautiful, just kind of on an individual basis. So when I'm painting it, I approach it very much the same way of, okay, how, how does this, how does this medium work? And what are the things that this medium is really good at making that are beautiful? Okay. Um, so I just, I create something that's just really, really soft. And then I kind of, I started on one side developing, um, just developing these really, really soft shapes. And then I worked my way across and then 
started adding some like really really dark uh like dark rich blues and start now that i had a background that's nice and soft and appealing i could start working on top of it and creating some high contrast it's like high contrast tree thing i wasn't necessarily trying to make a tree right but i i mentioned earlier that when i was designing this furniture i was really trying to find the most geometrically minimal solution uh-huh. um, i think that that's actually kind of soul destroying i uh being in the built world is uh is not super pleasant but being in in nature is really really nice so right being around things that are geometrically complicated and the forms are a result of emergent properties is actually super appealing and uh, restful for the brain and you can accomplish that in a painting in a way that you can't really accomplish with product design and the emergent properties and how paint mixes is uh is really nice for that but but when but even still, though, even still, though, to give you credit, you do have very simple design shapes, mm-hmm. but then you're and and a simple material in in metal, but then you have like complex uh, complexities in the grain. You use wood with yeah, metal, yeah. which adds the complexity. And then I don't know how you do this part, but but you you engrave. I've seen people do similar things where you engrave a pattern um, of sorts. What what is that? Process oh, this like? is uh, so. These are this is actual satellite imagery of rivers. Okay. So yeah, I, um, to make uh, to make these tables feel much more organic and natural, I uh, um, I was really inspired by just using Google Earth and looking uh-huh. at just how gorgeous our planet looks from space. And I wanted to find a way that I could incorporate this beauty into my work and the silhouettes of rivers seemed really perfect. People have been doing river tables. You see them on Instagram all the time where people kind of like take a, take a live edge slab, cut it down the middle, flip it over and then fill the middle with like sparkly glue or something. It's right. It's kind of overdone and tacky. I've also seen them do it with electricity. Have you seen that? Those are, that's, that's cool. Cause yeah, it has yeah. that like, it has that like really natural chaotic property to it. You Those have balance. no idea what it's going to do. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, but the process for these is I um, I take a satellite image and then by hand of of a river and then by hand I take it into Illustrator and trace the outline of the river with a vector path with a pin tool. It's uh, it takes a while, but it's it's kind of nice and relaxing. It's it's the main time consuming step. At that point, once I have a clean vector file that looks really nice, uh, I can. Uh, carve that into the tabletop with a CNC machine. I use a, a bit called a V-carve bit. It's, uh, it's a cone, and you can change the, the depth that the cone plunges into the material, Okay. and that will allow you to get any radius. So you can really carve any shape that you want. So once I've carved the shape into the top of the table, I fill that void in with a black biodegradable epoxy resin. I let the resin set, and then I sand it flat, and the Resin's about the same hardness as wood, so it ends up being perfectly flat. And you, if you close your eyes, you can't like tell where the wood starts and the epoxy begins. So it's a really like crisp, clean, very durable way to put an image into a tabletop. Yeah, it's very nicely done. Um, why do you do so much by hand, though? Um, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, which which part of the process. Like the whole, the whole, uh, 
building of the table. I know some stuff uh, has to be done by machines, but like um, a lot, like a lot of your work, I noticed is hand done. Uh, why do you do that as opposed to um, automating the process or uh, something along those lines? Um, a big part of that is uh, a capital investment. It, it doesn't cost me a lot of money to build something uh, with my own with my own labor um, but as as I as I get better at this I'm learning more I'm learning how to minimize the amount of human labor that's necessary and maximize the amount that can be done by by the laser cutter in the suit and the CNC machine and and these other digital manufacturing processes. Do you think you always have uh, <clears throat> a, some sort of, of hand-made uh, element in your in your work in the future? I, I think that handmade elements add like an amount of warmth and life to a piece that just isn't present when the entire thing is done by a machine. Things can end up feeling really, really cold. Right. Um, it's just whenever every single time you have someone touch a product it adds to the cost so i'm trying to figure out how do you maintain that level of like that level of warmth and sincerity but how do you minimize the amount of time that the craftsman actually needs to spend with a product because um when things are fully mass produced they feel really dead and soulless Sure, and and as if I'm getting this correctly, your part of your goal is to make this uh, your products available to as many people as possible, um, because obviously um, we can't uh, have a, a resource um, uh, a, a resource um, how how do you say it? We can't use our resources well if if um, only the. Uh, the rich are doing it right so yeah um so keeping those costs down are are i can see them definitely working towards that goal um and also the people aren't going to want to hold on to furniture for 75 years unless it's uh seriously cool stuff which yeah. which this is and i i personally think that the the hand crafted elements really add to that yeah it's huge um yeah so oh but by the way the uh the rivers are uh the rivers are all carved by a cnc machine so i don't i don't carve these i don't carve these by hand these are all done by by a robot um but i mean the anytime you make something out of hardwood the the finishing all of the finishing getting it from where it's a raw piece of lumber to something that feels really nice that's a really really labor-intensive step so anytime that something involves hardwood, it it requires a high level of craftsmanship to bring it to a uh, a, a really refined state. And I've seen you, I've seen you on, I think Instagram, uh, getting some materials, um, and then the video I saw you were you were throwing some like metal in some acid. Um, what was that all about? Oh yeah, the the giant vat of acid. So I'm doing this uh, this pretty big job for a coffee shop in Chicago called Mojo Coffee, and uh, the uh, 
the design that I'm building um, is uh, it's a stool that's bent out of uh, half inch by one inch bar stock and that bar stock is going to be chrome plated. So when you're chrome plating steel, the steel needs to be very, very clean and it needs to be very, very polished. Okay. So I needed to uh, source the, when, when you buy steel, it has this thick oxide layer on it called mill scale. And mill scale is, uh, it's difficult to weld over and it needs to be removed before you can do chrome plating. And this is tricky because if you want to remove it with abrasives uh, for the, uh, the amount of steel that we had, which is like 600 pounds of steel, it would have cost somewhere on the order of $2,000 uh, to have it removed either with sandblasting or with abrasives. So I uh, did some research and figured out how to remove it chemically. Turns out you can remove it with uh, acetic acid or hydrochloric acid. Uh, I, mod I modeled it up and figured out the volume of acid I would need and realized I didn't want to deal with 10 gallons of hydrochloric acid, <laughs> which oh, right. sounded like a nightmare of nightmares. I've, I've used hydrochloric acid before to remove mill scale and it, it does the job real fast, but uh, you, uh, you have to use hydrochloric acid and that stuff is horrible to work with. Um, so yeah, I just made a big vat of vinegar and uh, the, the steel has been sitting in there 48 hours and the mill scale came off just fine. And it's a, it's a process called pickled, pickle, uh, called pickling and oiling steel. The oiling oh, really? part is once you pull it out of the, uh, the vinegar bath, it flash rusts and you have this really, really thin layer of rust on the outside of the steel, Okay. which you, uh, um, which I found you can remove just by spraying WD-40 onto the steel and then, uh, um, wiping wiping the WD-40 in with like a heavy Scotch-Brite stripping pad okay. and then just wiping that off with uh, with paper towels and d the WD on WD-40 stands for water displacement so you can just spray it on a wet steel and it pretty much just tells the water to get out of the way uh, and I then, had no idea that's what WD-40 is yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's mostly good at making things not have water on them anymore all of the other secondary uses there's always something that's better than wd-40 but in this case uh it's actually the perfect thing to use i did know that when they were developing wd-40 like it, it, it the 40 was like uh was like the the um i, I want to say model number but it's not a model because it's like a it's it's a chemical you know but it was, it was kind of like, it's like red dye number five or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, and that's the one that they found uh, worked for, I, I think it wasn't even intended to like grease up, you know, door joints and things like that. But they found that it worked really well. Uh -huh. um, but the, just WD-40 was, was the name of whatever project that they were working on at the time. And then so they marketed it. It's just insane. That's wonderful. Together, we have unlocked the entire meaning of the name WD-40. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. Um, <laughs> the more you know. Exactly. Um, so this is some seriously cool stuff. Um, I would love in a year or six months a year um, to have you on again and see where you've gone. 
Um, and I, I, I wanted to, I, I would like you to tell the podcast um, what it takes to um, be your own boss, you know, take the contract jobs, um, not uh, do the, uh, the 401k health insurance corporate life. Um, what does that look like? And uh, what are some things that somebody considering a similar lifestyle to you needs to know? Uh, you need to be willing to eat uncertainty for breakfast every single day. Okay. Uh, you don't, whenever you're trying to start your own business, it's enormous amounts of uncertainty and you also need to be willing to do a lot of things that you don't want to do. Um, because you also need to be willing to go outside of your current skill set and learn how to do things that you're bad at. Or else, because there isn't an organization around you that's going to do those things for you. Um, I mean, ideally, at some point, you'll be able to hire somebody to do all of those things that you don't like doing and you're bad at. But initially, you need to do those things uh, so that further down the road, you have an ability, you, you have a more seasoned ability to delegate tasks and have an understand and a more well-rounded understanding of what needs to get done to accomplish your goals. What do you do to stay focused and or um, kind of deal with the loneliness of uh, working, you know, for yourself? Um, I've, that, that's definitely a challenge. I, I kind of underestimated the, the loneliness associated with starting your own business, but I, right. I, I think the, uh, what's really worked for me is really cultivating social connections that have nothing to do with, uh, what my business is okay. and making sure that I take time and I, I rock climb a lot. So go to the gym and rock climb and just connect with people on a level that isn't necessarily related to my business. Um, it's also the shop I work in. It's a, it's kind of a community and all of those guys are really nice to be able to just interact with. And, uh, so if you can find some sort of community, uh, that has nothing to do with your work. Yeah. Yeah. You, you just, just to fulfill the, uh, the, the, the natural human need to, to feel like you're part of a community and part of a tribe. Okay. So you I mean, you have, you actually have both. I, I, I misspoke there. You have a, you have a tribe in your field, but then you also have the group, uh, in, in things that, that have nothing to do with your work. That is huge. Yeah. That's cool. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Sam, it has, it has been a great honor to have you on the Nash Stewart experience. Hey, it's um, been a great time. <laughs> it has, um, genuinely. Um, do you have uh, a question uh, for the audience? I think the question for the audience is, what do you want the future to look like? And what kind of world do you want to live in? Awesome. And awesome. I love that. What do you want the world to look like? What kind of world do you want to live in? 
it sounds like you're envisioning yours and you're doing what you can to make it happen. I think that's really cool. Um, and uh, we'll see you in other stuff. Oh, oh, really quick. How can people um, reach you or uh, take a look at like what you're doing or products that you're involved with or just anything that you're involved with that you want people to see? Yeah, I'm the, the most active on Instagram right now. Uh, make, make, make stories about what I'm doing in the shop and the little little manufacturing problems I'm solving every day on uh, White Gorge Designs on Instagram. I also have a website, uh, whitegorgedesigns.com. And you can also follow my personal Instagram uh, at Sam underscore Tresco. So that's at Sam underscore Tresco to follow Sam and then to see his uh, line of, of uh, uh, furniture uh, White Gorge Designs is a website and an Instagram for that. Thanks, Sam. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up there. That interview was a lot of fun, and I can't wait to see where Sam Tresco goes in the next year or two, how his styles evolve and what new designs he might come out with or projects he might undertake. In the meantime, let's answer his question what we would like the future to be like and what type of world we would like to live in. You can hit me up with the answer at Nash K. Stewart on Instagram or Twitter. Later, podcast. <laughs>